You know, there is always this flush of excitement when the pastor announces that he is going to be preaching through Revelation. Everybody's super excited about it, uh, ready to kind of dive right in. And we get, we get really charged up when we see this amazing vision of an exalted Christ at the beginning. And it's, it's, it's full of depth and, and wonder and power and honestly a, a little bit of foreboding. And we think, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then we hit these um, rather pedestrian by comparison letters in chapters 2 and 3. And there's this sense that you get the church is kind of saying, let's hurry through that so we can get to the weird stuff. You know, we, we love that weird stuff from chapter 4 forward. It, it's, it's what the book of Revelation really is about for us. And frankly, we, we begin to treat both preachers and congregation like uh, one, two, and three are almost a different book than chapters four forward. In fact, um, I've preached them entirely separate from the rest of the, of the book before. It's almost as if we begin to think of Revelation as the letters to the seven churches and then the Revelation of John. But the entire book is called the Revelation of John. And so all of it works together as a cohesive whole and we, I'm afraid, have begun to so overemphasize chapter 4 forward that we've lost, really, the purpose and the intent of the book. It's why, frankly, some of us have a, a, a kind of a puzzled look on our face when the book opens and we are told that we will be blessed if we obey the book. And then when you come to the end of the book, Jesus says, you will be blessed if you obey the book. And people have come to me frequently and said, well, what does that mean? Because it's all about predictions. The book of Revelation is all about predictions, not obedience. No, it's not. No, it's not. The book is written to the church. It calls the church to repent. A church that is living in a and a very hostile kind of environment is called to repent and to fix their hope, their certainty of what will come in Jesus, and then having experienced that call to repentance, we are given a picture as to what will happen as a means to encourage us that God is still on his throne, Jesus is still king, and he will return for us one day. What I'm saying is, is that we have inverted the importance of this book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are really the heart of it. And what comes at the end is meant to encourage us by what we see in 1, 2, and 3. So we are in the good stuff, even if it's not quite as weird as we want it to be. So I hope you have found Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking first at the church of Ephesus in the letter written to them. Ephesus was a a city, uh, one of the most prominent cities in the Roman Empire at the time that sat on the Aegean Sea in what for us would be modern day Turkey. And it was the home to uh, one of the great wonders of the world, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, was headquartered in Ephesus. And it was prominent culturally, it was prominent politically, it was prominent in every kind of way. So it should not surprise us that really one of the most prominent churches of the time was located in Ephesus. In fact, some might say at this particular point in history, it was the most prominent church. There are those that speculate, 
uh, rightly so, that, that John may have written the Gospel of John while he was in Ephesus associated with this church. So it's an important church, but it had an important word it needed to hear. And I hope, having found Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, that you will now stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, remember if you weren't here last week, that's a reference to the kind of the prevailing spirit, the the spirit that represents churches in heaven. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, these seven letters that we're going to encounter over the next seven weeks follow a fairly predictable rhythm that we'll become very accustomed to. There is an introduction where Jesus will uniquely present himself to the church. Each one of these presentations of Christ to a church largely are completely different and are given in a certain way to speak to the particular situation of that church. And then he will follow uh, that presentation of himself with a a commendation for what the church is doing well, a rebuke for what the church is doing poorly, and a warning if they don't repent, but a promise if they do, although not every church gets all of those things. Ephesus, however, does get every one of those things that we have just mentioned. And in order for us to fully appreciate everything they are being told, rather than go through it sequentially, we have to drill down, I think, to their rebuke that they are given. That rebuke shows up in verse 4. Let's look at it again. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, not everybody's comfortable doing this, but if you are, you may want to underline the word abandoned. Some of our English translations may use the word left, depending on which one we're using. This is an instance where uh, the the English needs a little bit of help to, to really get to the heart, the impact, the weight of what it is that Jesus is saying to John to communicate to the church. What John is saying here is akin to the idea of you've divorced your first love. You have forsaken your covenant obligation. You've not kept the promise you committed to keep. You aren't doing what you were commanded to do and what you committed to do. And so we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says that you have abandoned the love that you had at first? 
Well, one possibility is that he's saying, you've abandoned your love for me. In fact, my guess is most of us, as we have heard messages from this passage of Scripture, have heard messages from that perspective, that the Ephesian church is being told that they have abandoned love for Jesus. To be honest, when I've preached this in the past, the distant past, that's probably the uh, direction that I took at the time. But is that really what Jesus is saying? Is he saying to the Ephesian church, you've got a lot of good going on, but you've abandoned your love for me? Well, let's look at the passage for clues. Go back to verse 2. He says, I know your works. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduing patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Do those verses sound like words that would be spoken to a church that had started to grow cold in their love for Jesus? I think those words speak actually to just the opposite. I think these people loved Jesus. Jesus commends them in verse 2 for their energy in doing what is right and their courage in standing true for what is right. And in verse 3, he says that they have done all of this. They have endured for his namesake. They've done what they've done for Jesus. That doesn't sound like words Jesus would be speaking to a church if their love for him had grown cold. So it must be something else. And the clue is to what that something else might be is able to to be reached when we understand and remember the one to whom Jesus was giving this message. He was giving it to John, the apostle, as Ryan read, the apostle of love. I would contend that of all the teaching that John the apostle, one on the inner circle, one of the twelve, of all the teaching he heard fall from the lips of Jesus both that is recorded for us in God's Word and also the countless things that he heard that we aren't privy to. I I think of all the things that he heard, the thing that impacted him most was something he heard fall from the lips of Jesus the night before he was crucified. And he recorded it for us in John 15. John 15, 12 is this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The reason I say this impacted him most is because he repeated this command in some form or another over and over again in 1 John. In fact, I would argue that a full quarter of the book of 1 John is an unpacking of the idea of what it means to love God, to love Christ by loving one another. But it's in chapter 4 of 1 John where he expounds most clearly on this command of Jesus to love God one another. So hold your spot in Revelation 2, go back just a few pages, find 1 John chapter 4, and follow along as I begin reading in verse 7. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, it'll be on the screens. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, Because God is love. Jesus, who made John and inspired him to write the words of 1 John, would have known exactly 
how the word love would have landed in John's ear and filtered through his brain as he recorded the words of Revelation 2. He knew that when he spoke the words to the Ephesians, you have abandoned the love you had at first, that John would have heard it. You've abandoned your love for one another that you have had at first. And those familiar with the teaching of John would have heard it in the same way. So there is a sense in which I think Jesus was saying, you don't love one another like you used to, but it's because their affections for one another had grown cold, which both Jesus in the Gospel of John and John says in 1 John can't go together. You cannot say, I love Jesus and hate the children of Jesus. You cannot say, I love God, but hate the children of God. So what Jesus had against this church was that they no longer loved one another like they did when they found Jesus in the first place, when they experienced that flush of joy that came to them, when they heard the gospel of Christ and understood that a an eternal and sovereign God had, had reached down into time and plucked their souls from hell and by His grace redeemed them to be a nation unto Himself forever and ever and ever. When they found that out, when they encountered somebody else who had that same testimony, they'd say, you too? You too? And they were drawn together in just this, this love for one another based on their love for Jesus. But now it's gone. And Jesus is rebuking them for it. So we must ask the question, why? Well, I believe it was a perversion of zeal for what is true and what is right and what is good into something unholy, something more self-centered and less Christ-centered. I believed that they had allowed their passion to make sure they were right to corrupt their love for one another. And I think the text will bear that out. So there are a couple of application points I want us to see here today. First, unholy zeal devastates love for each other. This is where we begin to get down into it to find out why we can make this conclusion. Ephesus was the kind of church that a good many of us here would likely have been drawn to. Not because of its prominence in the world at the time, but because of its stances. Ephesus was a city that was as foul and debauched as any city in the world at that time. And the teachings of Christ, as championed by the people of Ephesus, would have stood out like a blinding light in that spiritual darkness. And the church was fully on board with that mission of shining into that darkness. They took seriously their commitment to guard themselves as individual followers of Jesus. They worked and they toiled with patient endurance in the moral swamp in which they lived. They took seriously their commitment to guard the moral and spiritual integrity of the church. They would not bear with people in their midst bent on compromising ethically, morally, or theologically. They took seriously their commitment to guard 
are the teachings of Christ and the doctrine of the church, having the ability and the willingness to root out false teachers and false teachings. We won't get into this because Scripture doesn't get into it, but there was a particular brand of false teaching that was infiltrating uh, various of these seven churches called the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know anything about what that was. We really can't know what it was. It's not explained. But it was a departure from Orthodox Christianity, and they were committed to rooting that out. And all of this sounds good. And in fact, it not only sounds good, it is good. It is worth emulating the things that this church was committed to. Every single one of these commitments must be present in an effective church in the post-Christian world in which we live. We must guard our lives and personal witness. We must guard the corporate witness of the church. We must guard zealously the teaching of the church. But we need to be careful that in the midst of doing all of this guarding, being guard dogs, that when we run out of people to bite, we don't start biting one another and devouring one another. Because that's the thing about a guard dog. They need something to bite. Our church is a part of the Southern Baptist denomination. If you didn't know that, congratulations on that new revelation that you've had today. Years ago, and it really genuinely now is decades ago, when I was in college and in seminary, our convention went through what is known as the conservative resurgence. I mean, I was in our colleges and seminaries at the time, and they were populated, led by, taught by genuine theological liberals. They didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the absolute truthfulness of Scripture. They denied the supernatural, and there were some in our seminaries who were teaching that Jesus was not the only way to God. I'm not kidding. It's a matter of record. And so, leaders in our convention, godly men like Adrian Rogers and W.A. Criswell, rose up and wrested back control of our convention entities. And other younger men came in behind them to keep that shorn up. And the Southern Baptist Convention is to date the only denomination in American religious life to look over the precipice of theological liberalism and turn back. The guard dogs had successfully, faithfully guarded. But we ran out of people to bite. And now there are factions of theological conservatives in our convention, multiple factions, folks who all believe in the inerrancy and truthfulness of Scripture and who believe in the supernatural and who believe in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation who have started to bite and devour one another. And it's filtering down from the convention to local churches. This has been the most violent summer in my lifetime that I can remember. I was alive in 1968, but I was too busy looking for my pacifier in 1968 than to really pay attention to the news. Obviously, that was a horrific year. But this is the worst one that I can remember. America's tearing itself apart. It's tearing itself apart. From riots to vigilantes, shooting protesters, 
to cowards attempting to assassinate cops. We're tearing each other apart. And the church has never been more voiceless. But it's not Washington's fault. It's our fault. It's our fault because the very same things that are tearing the world apart are tearing the local church apart. And we've begun to be suspicious of one another and angry at one another. And we'll, we'll, throw, we'll throw labels and tags at people indiscriminately, not even knowing what those labels and those tags mean. And we'll begin to define people along whom we sit and worship every week as some kind of enemy. We're biting and devouring one another in the local church and sometimes even at Blue Valley. And so the reason that the world is falling apart is because the message of the local church has ceased to be Jesus saved and has started to be you have to believe everything exactly like I believe or you're not even saved. We have that core doctrine. We'll say, sure, we agree with that. But we overlay it with something else, whatever that something else might be. And we'll say, the core doctrine is not really true if, if you don't have this on top. And we're killing one another. And have nothing to say to the world. Except come and join our mess in here. All born of a right passion to stand for what is right, but then perverted into a self-serving, I am right and everybody else is wrong. An unholy zeal that takes away a, a focus on the glory of God and the sufficiency of Christ and the amazing community of the church and turns it inward devastates love. And that leads us to the next application point, a natural outcome of that. Unholy zeal devastates not only love for others and each other, but for the mission. For the mission. You know, as we go back to Revelation chapter 2, I think we don't need to lose sight of, in verse 5, what Jesus has says he's going to do if, if the church can't figure out how to love one another again. He says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, remember that love that you used to have from, with, for one another, born of that, that newfound relationship with Christ you have. Remember from where you've fallen, repent of that, turn away from that nonsense of hating one another, and do the works you did at first. Commit to not defining yourself differently from everybody else, but instead loving the church while maintaining the zeal. Verse 6, he says, you got to continue to hate the false teaching. you got to continue to root that out, but, but, but do what you did at first. Remember, you're in this together, and you need need one another and love one another. Do that. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember what the lampstand is in Revelation imagery. 
It's the church. What's he saying? He's saying if a church in a community and in a country won't get it done, I'll go somewhere else. And he is, for all the hand-wringing that we are doing in America about the state of Christianity, it's exploding south of the equator. It's exploding in a totalitarian government like China. But it's dying here. Could it be that Jesus has decided he's done putting up with us and maintaining a remnant of faithfulness in pockets in the Western world, but going someplace where they'll love each other and love the mission? Folks, I preach sermons in bulk right? I mean, dozens and dozens of times a year I preach. And here's a little hint. I would be hard-pressed to tell you a single thing I said last week. I write them, I preach them, and then next week's coming, and that's where my brain goes. But this has been, a, a, this has been circled on my calendar today. And I'm not going to lose sight of this one for a long time. Because this is what we need to hear. You've abandoned the love you had at first. We are not loving one another as we were called to love. And we must not let the pressure from the outside culture and all of the, the lawlessness that we see and, and all, of the, all of the sin that we see to cause us to draw lines against one another. We're going to need each other. We're going to need each other. And we can't lose sight of love. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do with all of this? I think we need to realize that a zealous church runs the risk of being an unloving church. That a zealous Christian runs the risk of being an unloving Christian. And the church, the person who becomes suspicious and begins to see other brothers and sisters in Christ as the enemy is the church that will soon not have any voice in its world. And if love for brothers and sisters is absent, Scripture says that it calls into question our true love for Jesus. And if we are committed Christians but aren't proclaiming Jesus saves to our world, then we've lost the plot. So what do we do? We test our love. How gossipy are we? You know, that's one of the behaviors alongside homosexuality and adultery and sexual fornication. In Romans chapter 1, that's one of the behaviors that Paul says are indicative of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the next service, I'll point out that it's also disobedience to parents is in that list. That'll help parents for the rest of the afternoon. When we see someone sinning, are we going to them in love, concerned for their spiritual well-being? Are we committed when we disagree to talking about 
and not two? Test your love. Test your love. How missional are you? Who's the last person that you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with? When's the last time you voiced your opinion on a political or cultural matter? That might be your mission. Test your love for God's people. Test your love for God's mission. Because I think there's a real danger that we have left the love we had at first. We need to repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.